Welcome to the Pod 20, and my guest this week is BJ Shea, the host of BJ Shea's Geek Nation and BJ and Migs Mornings on 99.9 FM KISW in Seattle, Washington. They're all Zooming it. I've never heard the word Zoom so much in my life than right now. It's like, I mean, people have known about it, but now everybody knows about it. I'm starting to think that the makers of Zoom also created the coronavirus. Because all of a sudden, this is the most popular thing out there right now. That is a very interesting theory, sir. BJ Shea from Seattle, Washington, a state that has legalized the recreational use of marijuana. I'll ask him what difference that's made. The Hollywood scriptwriter Ken Levine will be on to talk about the epic blog fight he had with Roseanne Barr. And I'll check in with Gemma Moore, one of the stars of the hottest horror film of lockdown, Host. But first... A quick news update. At last night of the proms, people will be singing the controversial song Rule Britannia, but you won't hear the word slaves. What you'll hear is Britain's never, never, never shall be Smurfs. They'll be singing slaves, but it'll sound like Smurfs because they'll be wearing face masks. Into the pod 20 now, and at number 20, it's Jack Mates Happy Hour. It's one of the funniest comedy podcasts out there. Great to see him making it into the pod 20. At 19, the Joe Wicks podcast. Three weeks ago, this one was at number one. It's dropping faster than the weight you'll lose if you follow his health and fitness advice. At 18, BJ and Migs Mornings on 99.9 FM KISW in Seattle, Washington. The podcast of the radio show. BJ Shea is my special guest this week. And BJ, Washington State has legalized the recreational use of marijuana. How's that worked out for everyone? Depending on who you talk to, uh, we get a lot more people coming to this fine state of ours because it isn't prose- is prosecuted as harshly. Some of the folks that come here may not uh, may be putting a strain on the system because they they might they, they might just not want to do anything but just sort of live in a tent. That's been the thing that people are upset about. And at the other and at the other side of it, though, is that there's a lot of great medicinal uses that uh, recreational use or even medicinal use of marijuana has done to you know to benefit people as well as create business. But it's one of those you know it's one of those things that if you if you lean one way or you lean another way, you're going to feel that way about it. I mean, which is life, you know, Graham. It's like if I have this attitude of whatever. That's how I'm going to see everything. You know, it's like if I'm Mr. Negative, everything <laughs> is horrible. <laughs> I hate everything. Um, I think for the most part, it's been good. I, re- I really do because I just don't see why we should legislate against something like this. I think our money is better well spent, perhaps, finding other things. And really, if we can do anything to do something about the mental health issues that our country faces, which I think is responsible for any problem we ever have. Uh, You know, I think it's either alcohol, drugs, not on your medicine, or should be on medicine. I I think that is the response. I think that you could look at any crime that's ever committed, and one of those four reasons are it. And that's a mental health issue. Rather than throwing somebody in a prison, how about we get people some help? And I don't know why that isn't the rallying cry of every politician in our country, but it's not. Yeah, yeah. 
So you, it's usually about the money, and you could be cynical and say that the 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 legalization of it in Washington State was to do with money, was to do making money. So well, yeah, it could well be. It could well be but green for the green, my friend. <laughs> you want that green sense? You got to sell that green. Tell me about the podcast, then. BJ Shea's Geek Nation. Well, um, I have to say that uh, it is a labor of love, a passion of love. I am a huge, huge geek. Um, it, I did everything to not have my Star Trek Enterprise bridge background. I thought, well, you know, I, 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 but, I, but believe me, it, 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 I, I did think about putting it there. Um, yes, I, uh, uh, I'm a, a huge geek, and when I was asked to do a podcast eight years ago, I said, well, I'm going to do about something I love that I don't get to talk about that much on my main show. And um, it's turned into a really fun enterprise that I use now mostly to promote other people's work, whether it be anything, whatever they're doing. It could be movies, television, writing, uh, video games, board games, uh, tech. And, and we like to give an opportunity for people to, who are trying to make a living in those worlds and they're fledgling, is that, well, maybe our podcast can let pe- more people know about it. Wouldn't that be great if this could be your full-time job? Since I get to do this as my full-time job, it's sort of a way of paying it forward. Um, as well as maybe talking about all my favorite stuff and talking about all the board games I like to play. And um, you have a wonderful uh, group of folks out there. Um, Matt Quinn and uh, I think it's Paul from Shut Up and Sit Down, uh, which, is a, which is an internet board game uh, video series that they've done for years. And, um, and they just, because of how they bring the British to it, if, as, as an American, it's the best way I could say it, I find it so enjoyable on how they tell, teach me how to play a board game, and yet at the same time, it is a full production. Uh, very talented people, and so uh, I'm on, you know. Let me make sure I've got their names right, just because. Called uh, yeah, yeah, Quentin. Excuse me, Quentin, Matt, and Paul. And um, shut up and sit down. Uh, and it's they're brilliant. It's just brilliant, brilliant people. And you know that's how deep the rabbit hole goes with that. We can do this geek podcast because yeah. there's so much out there that nobody knows about. Um, these guys make a living doing that. They just do these YouTube videos and they hope that people will pay them Patreon or whatever and they hold conventions and, um, and they're not the only ones. There's so many more. Um, but you know that, you know, Graham, you know that if now the world is such a big place that if you, if you are into one thing, somebody else will make a video and probably make a buck off of it. It's pretty amazing. It is. We're in the golden age of content creation. And BJ and Miggs mornings on 99.9 FM, KISW in Seattle, is at number 18 this week on the chart. More from BJ soon. At 17, it's Desert Island Discs. This week it's a classic episode where Lauren Laverne's castaway is the poet's Wendy Cope. At 16, the Jordan B. Peterson podcast. At 15, Hollywood and Levine from the Hollywood scriptwriter Ken Levine. Ken, can we talk about something the LA Times called an epic blog fight? Yeah. Are you allowed to talk about it? Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. This was Roseanne Barr? What, what happened? Here's what happened. First of all, I've had a blog for 15 years. Great blog, called too. Called buykenlevine.com. Read my blog and listen to my podcast, Hollywood and Levine. Shameless plug. There was an article in New York Magazine, supposedly written by Roseanne Barr. And I say supposedly because it was way more articulate 
than she <laughs> ever was. <laughs> and she's complaining in the article about Roseanne and how they ripped her off and that the creator, Matt Williams, took credit for it. And it was her show. And just, woe is me, woe is me. Anytime an article like that comes out, I will get readers to my blog commenting, asking me my thoughts on yeah. it. And I read the article, which I thought was just just a piece of <laughs> shit. And so I wrote articles saying, the show is called Roseanne. <laughs> okay? How is she not getting credit? <laughs> the show is called Roseanne. She owns a major part of it. She's the major creative force on the show. She's starring in a show called Roseanne. And the fact that Matt Williams took undisciplined stand-up material and shaped it into an actual television series, an actual pilot that worked, he's entitled to creator credit. Yeah. He's very much entitled to creator credit. And then I talked about having known a lot of writers who have worked on the show, how absolutely horrid she was to writers. They would go through writers. It was just a revolving door. She didn't bother to learn their names. They would come down for a run through and they would have to wear signs around their necks with numbers. Okay. That's the regard that, that she had for writers. Women writers she treated just as badly or worse. So I write this in my, my blog post. She had a blog at the time, finds out about it, and writes just this scathing. It's like Donald Trump wrote a whole <laughs> blog post. Okay. Assuming Donald Trump could write a whole blog post. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Just insane ramblings <laughs> from a mad woman. Attacking you directly? Oh, attacking me personally. Okay. Yeah. Attacking me personally and saying how I was terrible to writers and I was terrible to women writers. And, and where'd she get that info from? Where does Trump get his info? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Pulls it out of her ass, okay? <laughs> it's like, none of it was true. Yeah. So I read this, and, and I go, I'm not going to get into a, a shouting match with Roseanne. I said, I, I just, you know, forget it. But a lot of women writers who worked on shows that I was producing, all wrote letters, you know, jumping to my defense, to my blog. Ken served as a mentor to me when I had my baby. Ken let me go home at six o'clock every night so that I could, you know, feed the baby and put my baby to sleep, etc., etc. We did the show Almost Perfect, and it was me and David Isaacs and Robin Schiff. So we had a, a woman who was a third partner. Uh, we brought her into our partnership. So, so I said, I, I'm not going to get into, you know, just a verbal debate. But 
here are what women writers have said. And, and like one of them had worked on Roseanne and talked about how, you know, Ken was, was great and he was a mentor and he, you know, never came on to us and there was no sexual harassment or anything like that. And, and Roseanne was Auschwitz. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) words to that effect. Okay. Okay. So, that sparked another just long, insane rant and and all of her, you know, minions, idiots, you know, wearing their future MAGA hats. Yeah, he's stupid. He's an asshat. You you know, like, okay. And at that point... I, I just, I wrote in the blog, like, I, I, like, I'm done. Good luck with you. I'm done. And the LA Times picked up on it. I think the USA Today also picked up on it. And it sort of became this story. I think it's on my IMDb page. I think there's... <laughs> it's they, on Wikipedia. Yeah, okay. That's where I saw it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. So... Uh, so it was never resolved. It's still an ongoing thing then. It's just, it's like, it's like North and South Korea. It's... it's <laughs> <laughs> well, let me put it to you this way, Graham. When she was going to do her comeback series, yeah. I was not asked to join the writing staff. <laughs> oh, how about that? Yeah. yeah. Ken Levine from Hollywood and Levine, which is at number 15 this week. At 14, the High Performance Podcast, the podcast that brings you a glimpse into the lives of high-achieving, world-class performers, hosted by Jake Humphrey and the psychologist Damien Hughes. At 13, Off the Menu with Ed Gamble and James Acaster. They invite special guests into their magical restaurant to choose their favourite starter, main course, side dish, dessert and drink. At 12, BJ Shea's Geek Nation. BJ Shea is my special guest this week. You know, BJ, the last time you and I saw each other in person was way back in 2012. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, it was the uh, the talk show boot camp in New Orleans was the last oh. time you and I were together in the same room. Oh, yeah. I have, and, and that might be the last time I did a talk show boot camp. I don't do those anymore. I'll, I'll go to the morning show ones, but not the talk show ones anymore. It's, I don't really do much of a talk show anymore, I guess. So I really wasn't getting a whole lot out of it. And, uh, and honestly, my attitude was pretty negative listening to some of the philosophy thrown my way. I think now, uh, upon further reflection, it had more to do with me than them. Um, yeah, but that's, I think that might have been the last time I went. Really? Yeah, I yeah. was there. I was invited there. I was on a panel. I was on a panel called The Rising, Rising Stars, mm. the show that have talk radio buzzing. Um, I think I remember that, yes. Yeah. Uh, my, my memory of that was... I think it was the second night you and I went out to dinner with a New Zealander. And to my great shame, I can't remember his first name. His last name was Van Dyke, and he was programming a talk station in New Zealand. Remember him? I believe I do. Yeah. Uh, but I and can't remember his first name either. We, we got to the end of the meal, and you said, well, do you want to hit the strip clubs now? And I said, <laughs> I said that's not really my thing. Oh, and, well... And, and this guy from New Zealand said, have you ever been to a strip club with, with BJ? I said, no, I've never been to a strip club. I said, it's just not my thing. And he says, oh, no. He, he, we were there last night, and BJ made the stripper cry. 
Yeah, that's uh, that sounds like my mo. I uh, I end up having more of a father daughter. Well, I don't know if I was the, well. It could have been a father daughter moment, and then they, you know, it gets more like a therapy session, uh, which I don't know if that's good for either one of us, really. But well, what was it tipped her over the edge? Oh my gosh! First of all, you're asking me to remember eight years ago. Okay, okay, yeah, sure. Uh, eight minutes ago, I'll tell you right now, it was a bit of a challenge. <laughs> but I feel probably. Uh, you know, it could have been a personal issue. Somehow, some way I had, I just had this way of seeing into people. I felt, here's my thing about going to, and I haven't been, I, that might have been the last time I went to a strip club. I can't remember the last time I was at one. Um, but I felt bad just observing without like making a connection without knowing it's like i i just felt like i want to give something back and then but the trouble is is it usually goes a little too deep trying to get to know her and next thing you know she's in tears talking about a family member she doesn't get along with uh and and that 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 sort of has been my interaction with a lot of a lot of people, mostly women, when I would talk with them, I, I would get a little, I guess I would get a little too non-surface. I don't make small talk very well. I really <laughs> go right I go right for the gusto. <laughs> and next thing you know, water works everywhere. Um, and I did get a bit of a reputation, like, oh, you've got to go to a, you got to go anywhere with him. It's not a typical moment. Uh, not too many people can, you know, you can get a stripper angry by not paying her or insulting her, but making a stripper cry that's a and you know that's a whole different level that <laughs> probably that's what makes you unique bj that's is what, that what it is yeah it was one of the things one of the many things that makes well, you i will say are. this i mean one moment you're talking with alan alda about how unique he is mm -hmm. and then you're talking with me about my own uniqueness <laughs> i just don't feel like that's a fair exchange for you <laughs> i, I, I do really. i do everybody who is who i because i select the guests and everyone I select as a guest for the Zoom cast, which also becomes a guest on multiple weeks on the Pod 20 on Podcast Radio, I select them. So I see you all on the same level. So you're there. You're there. You're a kind man. Trust me, BJ. Alan Alder, Alan Alder is right up there with BJ Shea. Yeah. You know, I, I hope someday he gets there. I really do. <laughs> you know, that, that kid's got talent. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's, uh, uh, you know, it's wonderful to see somebody like Alan Alda. What I've noticed about people who have achieved the success that he's achieved is that there is a humility. There's a kindness. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. nice to see. Yeah. Because I don't know if I always believed that was there. It's like, oh, somebody like him. Oh, he's got to be a this and that. You know, he's, he's got to be an expletive deleted. And it's so wonderful to see moments uh, from humans like that, that had have achieved whatever he's achieved, and just see in a level of peace and a level. I thought he was really kind with you, and mm. oh, he was lovely. Uh, yeah, which is when you think about it, you know how what it is to be an interviewer. <laughs> I, I don't care who you are. Somehow, some way, interviewers are just looked at sometimes like you are the enemy. I don't care if you want. I don't care if you're promoting my movie. You're <laughs> the enemy. BJ Shea, more from him soon, and BJ Shea's Geek Nation is at number 12 this week. At number 11, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition from Comedy Central's Podcast Network. At number 10, Grounded with Louis Theroux. Number 9 is Sam Walker's Desert Diaries. Sam, we know you from BBC Radio 5 Live. You now live in Phoenix, Arizona. Where did you grow up? 
So I grew up in the Midlands in a little town called Uppingham, which is uh, kind of halfway between Leicester and Peterborough. Mm-hmm. And um, an early child, can you tell? And, uh, and uh, yeah, my dad was a teacher and my mum worked in an office of a big paint container factory. So we were kind of a pretty regular family. Um, and yeah, I went to a school in Oakham. I got like a bursary thing to go to a, uh, private school so I was an early child as I said so I I was um I was privately educated and always felt quite a fish out of water there I mean I made some friends there who I've still got friends for life but I always felt quite a fish out of water in that whole environment I think because you know I remember like one friend coming to to, to stay for like afternoon tea and she was a lovely girl but as we drove up to my house she went oh I didn't know you lived on this estate and there was that kind of, you know, people didn't have houses with numbers in that school. People had houses with names. And I'd never experienced that, you know. And so I think that was a bit tricky. You know, we used to have to, and I'm not saying sob story at all here, but we, have to, we used to have to push our car every morning because they didn't have a choke that worked. So every morning I'd be in my school uniform and I'd have to push the car down the road so mum could drive me to school. And I used to pray that she wouldn't stop the car when she came to pick me up from school or I would have to push it down the road, start it at school in front of everyone else. So that was something that was always just like, oh, please don't let her stop the car, please, please, please. Because it was just, you know, it was really, really tricky. But, you know, I'm so massively lucky to have had that education because, it, you know, it taught me so, so much. And my mum my and dad had such a strong work, work ethic. I mean, my mum had never gone to uni. She'd not finished school. Um, my dad had gone to uni, but um, not until he'd worked in the family building firm for a few years you know so for them education was absolutely everything and that was you know I was the kid who was never allowed out (laughs) I had to do so much homework Uh, so I was allowed out one day in the week till nine o'clock and one weekend day and the rest of the time it was like get your work done so that was that was very much how I was brought up. So how did you get into broadcasting? Took me a long time took me a really long time and it was a total confidence it was total confidence thing so I'd left university and I'd gone to London and I wanted to be a journalist and I'd done some work experience at a couple of major newspapers and magazines and I remember doing some work experience at the Independent and they sent me to the House of Lords on the first day and I was wearing a suit and I had to had to kind of do a write-up about some law reform that had come in and I thought this isn't me this is not me at all and I just I didn't just feel like a duck out of, you know, duck out of water. I felt like, yeah, it, I didn't even want to get in the pond. You know, <laughs> I just thought this, this isn't me. And so I really faffed around for want of a better word. I mean, I worked really, really hard, but I didn't know what I wanted to do um, for most of my twenties. And I, I worked in various temping agencies and I worked for a while for an in-store radio group, which I loved. And there was a guy called Clint Bell who ran Virgin Megastore Radio, which is where I met Ian Canfield when he was 16. And he said to me, you'd be good on the radio, you would. And I went, oh, no, 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 no. And he said, oh, you know, you would be. Come down to, um, you know, Oxford Street, Tom Court Road, Oxford Street, where the big Virgin Megastore was. Have a go in the studio. And I had a go for half an hour and I cringed so much at the sound of my own voice. And I thought, I've got nothing to say. I've got nothing interesting that anyone would be interested in hearing. Not for me. And so I didn't take that opportunity at all because I just thought no one would be interested in me. And it wasn't until 
a couple of other little career loops later where I'd run a recording studio for a bit. And again, it was one of those moments where people I'd met along the way made me go, oh, wow, suddenly all that's fallen into place. And suddenly here's a new possible career path. And there was a guy called Johnny Hayward who turned out to be my first ever program controller. And he'd worked at, I want to say Mercury. Were they radio stations in Kent? Um, in the 90s it was, a GW, was it a GWR station? I think so I mean again this wasn't my world I wasn't in the radio world at all yeah. so he'd, he, he was uh, you know he'd, he'd done he'd had a fairly successful radio career he also did a bit of kind of cool DJing in, uh, in uh, kind of the old street area of London and I'd been to a few of his nights but long story short he started, he started to be programme controller of this tiny little radio station in southwest London in Kingston called Thames 107.8 and I was living in Camden at the time and um, he called me up and he said, look, I've just started doing it. Because he'd done some voiceovers at the studio that I'd worked at. And he said, I remember, you know, talking to you and you've, you've got, you did journalism. I was like, yeah, yeah. And he said, I think you've got a really good voice. And I was like, oh, gosh, have I? And um, I'd done some PR work for his wife, as it then turned out. It was one of these things where I said everything kind of slots in together because I'd done some work in PR for a few years. And he said, come down to the radio station. and." I need some newsreaders. And I was like, oh, okay. Give anything a go. I wasn't really working. I was working at a PR firm. I was doing a bit of marketing. You know, I was one of those bits and bits and bits with lots of different people. But you hadn't had a broadcasting job and you hadn't read a newspaper? Never. Okay. Never. But I'd done this post-grad journalism and I'd worked a bit in newspapers and he said, look, it's this tiny station. They're probably going to pay eight pence a week. You know, it was, it was, let's give it a go. So I went down and he was presenting the drive program because it was, it was that station where the boss also did, you know, 50 other things. And, um, he said, right, come in. And I sat down in front of the, you know, opposite the desk from him. And he went, look, I'm about to do the travel news. He said, look at that screen there. There's the travel. You read the travel. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll give it a go, you know? And I sat there and he put the fader up and he was like, right, let's get the latest travel news now for Southwest London. Here's Sam Walker. And the light went, the red light came on and my microphone came on and I read the travel. And in the 45 seconds it took me to read the travel, the heavens had also opened and angels came down going, this is it. This is what you want to do. This is what you want to do. Because I hadn't known. And I was just shy of my 30th birthday when that happened. And I had no idea. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And I remember going home and going I, I need to do that and that's what I need to do and I went back the next day and went into and I found this confidence that I'd never had before ever and I walked into the boss's office this you know the, the managing director and said I want to work on your station give me a job you need to I'm really good and he was like what experience have you got and I went none but I'm really good and as I said I don't know where this confidence came from it was almost like once I had the purpose I found I found the confidence yeah and a long story short was he gave me a job but that, that enthusiasm you know i've hired people before uh, and that enthusiasm you can't you can't buy that is more important than anything because you can learn skills basic skills yeah. someone's got the drive that's what you want that's it so that's you've obviously won him over pretty quickly yeah Sam Walker's Desert Diaries is at number nine this week. At number eight, No Such Thing as a Fish, the award-winning podcast from the writers of QI. At seven, Rob Beckett and Josh Widdicombe's Lockdown Parenting Hell. 
it's parenting, just not as you know it. Back to the chart in a bit. Let's check in with my special guest this week, BJ Shea. How long is it now that you've been hosting BJ and Migs mornings on 99.9 FM KISW in Seattle, Washington? We started in 2006. Wow. Um, which I was told, I was at the ripe age of 46, I was told, that's a little old to be starting hosting a show. You better get it right because this is your last opportunity. And that was... Uh, uh, and that was really the motivation that I needed. That was that positivity that really just... <laughs> Doesn't radio me. really look after talent? Doesn't radio yeah. really know how to stroke delicate people? Yeah. I do feel like the uh, nurturers somehow found other professions to really get to. <laughs> and, and somehow radio somehow just got missed. We just got avoided or something. Um, but yeah, since 06. Wow. And for wow. anyone who doesn't know, tell us about the show. So uh, the show has had a lot of different uh, sort of transformations over the years. Currently, uh, we work on a, mu a station that plays rock music. And it's, you know, you'll, you'll hear some new stuff from time to time. But we'll go all the way back to Led Zeppelin. We'll throw in Nirvana. We'll throw in uh, 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 Disturbed. It, uh, it's really mainstream rock. Uh, every once in a while, some Imagine Dragons will show up as well. And uh, that's the music of the station. And we'll play three or four songs an hour. And then in between that, we will do pop culture, really fun, not politically leaning at all type of material targeted towards a 35-year-old man, but a 35-year-old Seattle man, which is so different than a 35-year-old Cleveland man or a 35-year-old Boston man. Uh, so that's, that's something that I don't think really is recognized enough in our business, Graham, is that you can have a demographic, but then there's this regional culture that you have to respect uh, that, at least in our country anyway, because it's so big, um, that we would not, I don't know if we'd be considered a rock show in Cleveland. You know, we might be considered more of a lighter fair show that, you know, that, that maybe women would like, which is so interesting about just to, you know, depending on where you travel in the U.S. and their sensibilities. Mm. Now, you talk about the pressure of starting a new show. Uh, you replaced Howard Stern. Yes, I did. And wow. you know what? He's never come back. We showed him. <laughs> What's ever become of that guy? <laughs> yeah. He went on some weird spacey thing or something, didn't he? Yeah, he yeah. surely did. And then he hosted this America's Got Talent for a while, and I, that didn't. What did that do for him? <laughs> That poor guy never catches a break. <laughs> but the ratings went up after you replaced Howard. So what was the trick there? Because you'd think, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it was a station aimed, still is a station aimed, as you said, at, at guys. You would think Howard Stern would get all the guys he could, and then you went in and got even more. He did really well, too. Uh, Howard did. Uh, Howard's a great talent. So, uh, you know, if you don't have a local show, which at the time our station didn't have, they, they, you know, they said, well, let's plug them in. I mean, we, I don't know if we could do better than trying to wait years to get a local show. And that's what they did. And he did very well for our station. Uh, when he left, we had already been doing a midday show. So we had a nice following. Uh, people, I think, would listen to Howard in the morning, come and listen to us on a different station where we did middays. And so when he left, that was the company said, hey, you guys are probably the best alternative we have. And so they moved us, since the company owned both radio stations, they moved us from this midday show and had us as Howard's replacement. And the secret, Graham, is the secret to knowing 
our audience because Seattle's a very friendly place and it's very courteous. If you're discourteous in our city, you know, when you think about sometimes how the U.S. is, is you know, seen, especially if, you know, you maybe follow certain politics, we might seem very rude. Uh, and being from Boston, I know for a fact, you know, Boston, we pride ourselves on being very rude. <laughs> it, it, though we don't think so, but really, you know, when New Yorkers think you're a jerk, you got to, yes, at some point, you got to look at yourself. <laughs> Seattle is that polar opposite where courtesy is king. So, we knew that if we went on the air and badmouthed Howard, which a lot of shows tried to do, they tried to make him a bad guy when he left for satellite. We took a different alternative. We, 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 we actually opened up the phone lines and said, look, we know you're going to miss the guy. How, I mean, you're, you were his fans. You know, we're sorry that he's gone. Colin, let's talk about it. And so really, we turned it into sort of a kumbaya thing, which a lot of my peers thought I was crazy to do. But that, I think, really was the key. It worked out very well. My, my program director was all on board with it. So we were really kind and embracing. And that seemed to work. The folks that were like, all right, well, Howard's gone, but you seem nice. You know, it was. Yeah. And in Seattle, that's a big thing. It really is a big thing. Courtesy is king. You can be blunt. You can be direct. You can even almost really be negative towards somebody. As long as you do it with a please and thank you. Not like a lot of places in Britain, I'll tell you that, BJ. BJ Shea, who will be back next week. It's the Pod 20. I'm Graham Mack, and this is the definitive countdown of the top 20 podcasts right now. At number six, revisionist history. Malcolm Gladwell's journey through the overlooked and misunderstood. At five, the good, the bad and the rugby dropping from last week's number one, meaning there's a brand new number one on the way. At four, it's the hobby cast from Gemma Moore. Gemma is one of the stars of the lockdown horror movie, Host. Where did you grow up, Gemma? So I am born in Hong Kong, came over when I was like three or four, when my parents were going to go to New Zealand. Now I kind of wish they did because they handled COVID (laughs) so well. She's amazing. Um, And then mum was like, where am I? There's nothing here. And so England was the uh, <laughs> the happy medium. So d- my dad's from uh, originally from London and my mum's uh, from Hong Kong. And then we went to the countryside and I grew up on a farm, uh, walking pigs. And, where uh, about? In Herefordshire. Well, kind of it was sort of Gloucestershire, then Herefordshire, and then Shropshire. Yeah, yeah. okay. Just went further and further away um, from London. And so I grew up with lots of different animals, lots of green space. And uh, I was up like 5 a.m. every morning mucking out horses and in bed by like 7 because I was knackered. And then every weekend I was at uh, horse riding competitions or pig walking competitions sometimes. Um, so so you're a proper country life. girl then, yeah? Yeah. yeah. I've been I trying to grow jets, but they're not doing well in London. What's that? Trying to grow some courgettes because I used to grow courgettes every year. Yeah. And I'm just the foxes keep stealing them. <laughs> so the acting, the acting bug. When did that bite? Oh, that's been that's been um a, a long a long time. Well, first of all, I used to want to be a tractor until I realised that wasn't logically possible. When I was mm-hmm. like three, I was like, I'm going to be a tractor when I grow up. My mum was like. No. <laughs> and then a cheese taster. Again, my mum was like, not a viable career, Gemma. Um, little does she know that I go cheese tasting <laughs> once a year. No. Um, and then I had, uh, what did I have? So yeah, then cheese tasting. And then I 
used to make my parents watch performances of me. So I've like, since I was very little, um, every, pretty much every single day, I'd be like, I've done a performance. You guys are going to have to watch this. And they're like, okay. <laughs> um, being amazing parents that they are. And then at 12 years old, I went to my second school. And when you say they have to watch them. What did you tape them or did you perform them live kind of thing? Perform them live. Okay. And what kind of things were they? Spice Girls. Uh, okay. <laughs> Spice Girls. Renditions of films that I'd watched. Uh, <laughs> my interpretation of a whole film in two minutes. Um, then sometimes it would be that they'd have to come and almost like I basically started the supper club idea when I was a kid. That At what age are we talking here? Like eight years old with mud pies. Okay. I was like, welcome to my supper, supper dining thing. No, I didn't do that. I definitely didn't coin that term. <laughs> and um, so they used to come and uh, watch those things. And then I went to school. I got a drama scholarship to school. And I was dyslexic, so I always got really nervous about lines. But actually, once I got a bit more confidence, it just got better and better. And then... I went to university and I studied English literature and drama because I love books and I and I also the drama that I studied was performance art and I had an incredible sort of set of teachers who taught me there has to be purpose behind behind performance and there can be purpose behind performance you're not just doing it as this like narcissistic thing where you're like look at me everyone it's it's actually you can have a say in in what you want people to see and how much you want people to see and what you reveal and what you don't reveal and and that can be a, pol a political thing um and then i went to drama school central the royal central school of speech and drama sorry and from there i got taught how to make films as well um and when i was at uni actually when everyone was doing freshers i was like working five jobs i was working in retail i was working cleaning toilets i was then going to set you know, on some days, like a week, one week I went to set every single day. I was filming Jack Ryan um, with Kenneth Branagh. And then when I went to drama school, I'd kind of already had that under my belt and I actually learned how to make films. And then since then I've been sort of creating and acting at the same time. Yeah, you're very, very busy as a producer. Tell me about stalling it. <gasps> my little baby. It just got into Woods Hole Film Festival. Um, so Car Caroline Ward uh, is the writer and director. She came to me with a script and it was about these women in a toilet discussing how they'd been stalling life. And I went, why don't we set this in the 80s? And I was like, and why let's make our costumes really big and puffy and our hair big and then makeup tacky and you know put it in this pastel toilet um and then uh i sort of was like let's sasha's character i was like let's add a nosy neighbor because there's always a nosy neighbor in a toilet if you're having a conversation someone will you know chime in and in, a, in a lady's toilet for sure in a men's toilet i don't know what the dynamic is um no it's very very quiet yeah well i imagine at a urinals you wouldn't want someone to chime into a conversation with it happens but yeah it's not there's not there's not um <laughs> there's there's no movie in it you know <laughs> <laughs> maybe there is maybe there is um, I, I don't know. <laughs> So was it the, I mean, obviously producing it, it's, it's a business decision, but was there a, a kind of a, I don't know, a lust for control? I think more uh, a reaction to our industry. I think when I was younger, I was so fed up of being typecast. I was fed up of not seeing myself. 
I mean, I cried in the Star Wars when I saw Rose's character because I was like, wow, there is an Asian woman who isn't portrayed in a certain way mm. that's powerful and smart and funny and got Strong. a lot of heart. And so I, I mean, this was way before, but I wanted to, I wanted to see women behind the character. I wanted to see women at, in front of the character. And then I wanted to see diversity across the board. Like I, I think I started with being very much limited in, in understanding that I wanted women. And then I, and then I realized actually, you know, it just doesn't stop there. There has, there has to be narratives from every different kind of, you know, diverse background in order for there actually to be interesting layers. I think if someone also being able to not, to have a voice, so it's not like an echo chamber to have someone to encourage people on a film set. I have, um, whenever I do a film set, like a set of rules. So everybody has to go on set. They don't presume anyone's gender. They don't, you know, they have to have all, um, consent. If anyone wants, like, if anyone wants to put a mic pack on someone, there has to be consent. There has to be freedom to be able to ask questions um, and have boundaries. Something is I'm very, like, adamant on everyone being understand that they're allowed to voice those boundaries and voice concerns because I don't want to put anything out that I've silenced anyone on set or someone on set when it comes to creativity, obviously I understand that, but if it's coming from someone being like, Oh, this makes me feel uncomfortable because from my experience in my life, that's different from your life, this might hurt somebody of this experience. And then being able to discuss that and being able to say, well, okay, if it's a creative choice, we have to make sure it's a creative choice and it has reason behind it. Going back to the performance art stuff that I learned at university as well and gender politics. I learned, I did a lot of gender politics at uni. And so every film set has these policies that we go on set, everyone has to read them, everyone has to acknowledge them. We do a talk before we start filming and stalling it really had. And I did a film called All of Me as well that did exceptionally well and won a lot of awards and that a lot of women were at the time uh, identifying as female and now have transitioned. And so there was a lot of incredible voices on that set as well. And what was what has the reaction been like? With, uh, did you ever, did you, did you get much pushback on that? So for all of me, when we went to Cannes, it was just before the whole Harvey thing kicked off, actually. The Harvey? So, oh, Weinstein, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Harvey thing, it's been and gone now. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, so he was like, it was just before the thing happened. A lot of people were like, why is it only women? Blah, 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 blah. Um, what's the whole thing is like, oh, uh, you know, like we're going to make a men only set. And it's like, do you not understand that that's what it has been? <laughs> so there right. is pushback, but I'm happy to, I'm very privileged in terms of, you know, you know, I have a lot of support in my life. I have a lot of good people around me. So I actually can, when I have the energy, put in the time to not educate people because we'll educate people, but not in a patronizing way to be able to answer questions and try and change well, prejudice comes from ignorance, and it's all about it's all about learning. That's 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 all it is. That's that's how you fix it. Is you make people more aware, and yeah, that's how to do it. You can't yeah. you, you can't just stamp your foot and say no. It goes this way because people will go why. Well, if you go no, no, look, how would somebody feel like? Yeah, that's that's it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and 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 being in a in a position where I can do that, I think it's important to do that rather than somebody else. You know, who's 
less not less like fortunate than I am so when I have the emotional energy I will do that to people so actually I was quite happy to sit there and argue with a few trolls here and there and, <laughs> and be like well actually here's your here's your reading list for the next three years yeah go educate yourself yeah no that that is brilliant Gemma that really is making a difference in, in an industry that's well I don't know I'm not in that game but it does have a reputation and you see it on the screen you see some of the uh, some of the issues and it does make you uncomfortable that you know there is you know so much ignorance there but yeah that is yeah, watching stuff back now that I used to love when I was younger is is interesting you pick a few things out and you're like whoa <laughs> <laughs> it's changing it's glacial yeah. but it's changing and it's changing for the better Gemma that's the main thing Gemma Moore and her Hobbycast podcast is at number four this week Gemma will be back next week to talk about the film Host which really is the big horror film of lockdown it's set during the, the lockdown and it's a seance on Zoom and it's fabulous you'll catch it on Shudder anyway Gemma back next week to talk about Host number three on the pod 20 is the Joe Rogan experience Joe's latest guests are the comedians Whitney Cummings and Annie Lederman. At two, shagged, married, annoyed. The only way Rosie and Chris Ramsey can have a conversation without being interrupted by a toddler or ending up staring at their phones is by doing a podcast. Which brings us to a brand new number one this week. At the top of the chart it is... Spencer and Vogue. Spencer Matthews and Vogue Williams let you into their lives. You hear what they're doing, thinking and disagreeing on. That's it for episode 18 of the Pod 20. I'm Graham Mack and thanks to this week's guest podcasters, BJ Shea, Gemma Moore, Ken Levine and Sam Walker. If you'd like to watch extended Zoom chats with all of my guests, check them out on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Next week's guest is the film critic Anna Smith. You've probably seen Anna filling in for Mark Kermode lately. Anna, when you review a film, do you watch it in a cinema? Well, um, the answer would be quite different the past few months. Now, of course, of normally... Course, yeah. Yeah, normally we would go and see them in press screenings um, in screening rooms around London or indeed sometimes if people are up, you know, at other parts of the country. But unfortunately, most of the press screenings do take place in London. Um, or we would go and see them in one of the big multiplexes at what they call a multimedia screening with a load of other journalists and also sometimes even competition winners, you know, anyone who gets to see a preview of a film. Um, uh, it has been the last few years that you've been able to get art house films on links if you can't for whatever reason make the screening but obviously big studio films they've been very nervous about giving links out for security reasons and piracy reasons but in lockdown the, most films have had to find a way to show the journalists um, their work on the small screen so there's very very secure ways of watching them online but I've got a projector downstairs in my home and you know and I like I can see things on a relatively big screen um, really what 16 mil or 35 uh, yeah well it's just you know just watching you plug in your laptop and watch it you know oh, I got house. you right sorry I thought you meant actual film I mean no that would be amazing no but yeah it's just, just a way of projecting films that you know you can watch on your laptop or your iPad or whatever right um, so you simulate you, you, you simulate the movie experience okay. as close as you can I can something the annoying person behind you with the sweet wrapper Yes, so it's a win-win, really. Um, you know, I've got a big TV and stuff, but yeah, I mean, I, I do because in lockdown things have not been um, 
showing on the big screen, then we've just been reviewing things that are showing on the small screen anyway. So it's a fine way to review them. But when it comes now, now things are starting to come out um, on the big screen. I think it is important where possible that we get to see them that way because that's how the audiences are going to consume them. But the light of the streaming services, you know, Netflix and that, are we, are we possibly in a golden age of cinema? Well, what's great is there's so much money being put into film by the likes of Netflix and Amazon Prime and such like, and it's really great to see that. And my hope is that everything will continue to coexist and that cinemas who badly need the custom, especially now, will continue to stay open because the big screen experience is really exciting. But that lots of great films and perhaps in particular things like documentaries are going to get at their moment on the small screen. And perhaps people are going to take more of a risk on the kind of stuff that they might not have paid to go and see at the cinema and I think that's what's good about the likes of Netflix is that people are discovering slightly more edgy or challenging fare that they wouldn't have taken that risk on you know spending 12 quid in the, in the cinema yeah you take a punt when you go to see a movie you really yeah, do yeah and maybe they'll go and see that director's work on the big screen you know when that when that next comes along so that's my it might be a naive hope but I hope so what a time to be alive, eh, Anna? Anna Smith is my special guest next week on the Pod 20. And what will happen on the chart by then? Will Spencer and Vogue stay at number one for a second week? Will Shagged Married Annoyed go back to the top? And after all these weeks of being there or thereabouts, will Joe Rogan finally make it to the very top? Maybe your favourite podcast will be at number one. Find out with me, Graham Mack, and influence the chart directly by making a recommendation at thepodcastradio.co.uk. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.